Well, welcome everyone to uh, this episode of the Guardians of the Flame podcast. Uh, it's a real privilege to be inter- interviewing uh, Brian Keenan. Um, just to say, I've uh, we first met Brian Keenan about three years ago. Uh, Brian and John McCarthy and Terry Anderson all met together and came up to speak at the Literary Festival here in this beautiful village of Ross Trevor. Uh, and it was a real pr- privilege to meet Brian. I, uh, I, I grew up, my teenage years were the times when you were in captivity in Lebanon and uh, you, you know, in many ways made a big impact on me, you know, both the kind of those years of uh, kind of hoping you were okay and our f- whole family would sit and watch the news and um, uh, and then when you when you were released and all the way up until three years ago when I heard you speak here, I mean, your words were uh, just remarkable. So it's a real privilege to, to have you here with us, Brian. Thanks oh, for well, it's nice to be back again. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, yeah. So, um, Brian, you're from East Belfast. It's a part of the world I know quite well. Um, can you just tell us a little bit, the audience... Uh, probably watching this will be from around the world. Probably half of them, roughly, will be from around here, or around in this country, um, and half could be from Albania to Australia or whoever. Um, so, can you tell us a little bit about what Belfast was like, uh, particularly, obviously, in those years before you went to Lebanon? Okay. Uh, first of all, I spent my first early until I was nine. I lived in. Um, an area oh, very very well known kind of tough area on the Antrim Road uh, and then moved over to East Belfast and done my essential you know teenage years growing up there um, what I remember about Belfast was uh, as a as a child growing up um, I was kind of I enjoyed my childhood, uh, but something I should tell you before we begin: when I was locked up in Lebanon, uh, the only kind of thing you have is the kind of the memory process that you, you can go into. And for some strange reason, I could not get beyond the age of about seven or eight, and I don't know why. I had a lot of time to work on this. And there was something I couldn't, I just couldn't get there. Um, and I left it because if I can't get it, I can't get it. But anyway, um, my childhood, as I remember it, I quite enjoyed. Uh, but I was one of these unfortunate kids who uh, had very pronounced front teeth, right? Buck teeth. Uh, so uh, all my growing up was kind of dominated by the fact that you look like Bugs Bunny. Uh, you were called Bugs Bunny or Ratfius or whatever else, uh, which you just kind of accepted because that's what it was. Uh, uh, and you just got on with life. So I didn't get picked on the football team and I didn't get invited with the rest of the lads to go rob an orchard or anything else. And uh, But it never became a problem until girls arrived on the scene and then it became a problem because, anyway... Uh, my father, I had difficult relationships with my two parents. Uh, I had a troubled relationship with my mother, whom I didn't like. Um, and my father, who was quite distant, but I admired. Uh, my father worked in the telephones. 
He had been in the Air Force during the war. Um, he was an Orangeman. He was a Mason, everything that I would have nothing to do with. Uh, but I kind of liked him, I admired him. Uh, he had a kind of quiet assertiveness. And in the Bel very troubled Belfast that I grew up in, like um, Mayflower Street was on the Beersbridge Road, at the lower, the economically lower end of the road. Uh, and as you progressed up, not too far away, Van Morrison lived in Hindford Street, mm -hmm. in exactly the same house that I lived in. And then on up the road, the top end, economic end of the road, was uh, Ian Paisley, a man who troubled me throughout my uh, growing up. Um, however, I, I kind of think, in retrospect, looking back on that time, on that very, very troubled time, uh, Maybe that I was fortunate to be born when I was in 1950. Had I been born five or six years later in a different location, I may have been a different person. Do you know what I mean? Uh, because that kind of frenetic environment uh, took hold of people's minds and capacities to uh, think. Um, so in this re retrospect that I'm trying to come to, you know, when I look back on... Because I wasn't the, one of the rest of the guys, um, I took to reading books. I, I wasn't aware of it then. It just, I, I suppose it was a kind of compensation for not being one of the lots. Um, and uh, when I think back on it now, um, my reading of books while my mates were off robbing orchards or stealing milk from people's front doors or whatever badness they were up to, I didn't want to be with them because I was off in the wilds of Alaska, running with a wolf pack. Um, so the capacity for the imagination and isolation was fixed very early with me. I have two sisters, one's 10 years older, one's seven years younger. So in a kind of way, I grew up an only child because of the age difference, you, you didn't relate. Um, I kind of was okay with my ownness, aloneness. Um, it gave me a kind of imaginative capacity that um, I would not have had otherwise. Mm -hmm. um, one enduring lesson from that time that my father told me, because uh, I used to question his, his, he was a grand master of the Orange Order and he was some significant office in the Masons. Uh, and as I was, I used to question him, as, you know, in my late teens about this. And something that rings back to me from those days, because he was a great labour man uh, in that tradition of the working class. But he said to me something which comes ringing back to me across, what, more than half a century now. He said, uh, you know, Brown, it's like this. Those who shout the loudest aren't worth listening to. And those who talk the longest rarely have anything worth listening to. And, you know, it took me to be my own age, you know, 50s and 60s, to realise that this is a very profound truth coming from a working man whose politics and stuff I didn't have much time for. But those words are the greatest, greatest gift he gave me, yeah. you know. So i uh, just interested, Brian, in the fact that you came from, you know, over in, in this part of the world, this kind of 
you know, certainly Belfast, two sides, orange, yeah. green, British, Irish, Protestant, Catholic. You came from an orange home. Um, how, how did, you know, you talked about how you didn't share, you know, families, political views. How did you become someone that kind of in some ways escaped sectarian kind of mindsets or you know, what was it? Good question. I, about two years ago, I had friends who were visiting me from Provence in France. And they were great Van Morrison fans, so they wanted to go and see Van Morrison's house. So I drove them up, showed them a house, and then I drove down to my own house, which is a couple of streets away. And there's all the bumping up, you know, and all the slogans that become apparent, like just seem to magically appear on the wall, you know, on the early week of uh, July. And they're not very pleasant in what they say, but anyway, they just seem to appear there. And my wife, who's from Dublin where I live, said to me, how did you escape this, man? How did, how did you escape this? Uh, because it's very oppressive where I came from. Um, and I've had to think about that. And I think, well, look, I was 19 when the troubles apparently suddenly appeared on the scene, but they didn't, you know. Uh, one of my favourite books is Albert Camus' The Plague. Mm-hmm. And, look, I was a witness to a plague in my own streets because I was old enough and I'd read enough books, so intellectually and imaginatively, uh, I grew up outside of the culture of the streets that I lived in. Um, And I witnessed the plague uh, and it repulsed me. uh, And I saw friends disappearing into it. Um, It was hideous. It was really hideous. Uh, and I wanted no truck with it Um, it, because it made me very angry and I suppose in a kind of a way you know when you're displaced by your own culture by choice uh, you've kind of nowhere to go with your own resources and it does make you kind of a quintessential angry young man uh, about the world Um, so I think it was a choice that I didn't want to belong. Um, and I later learned much, much later uh, that um, due to my experiences in Lebanon and so on, that choice is a crime of life and not to exercise choice is not to be alive. Uh, and worse than that, it's not to be self-fulfilling. Um, so I decided to leave it uh, emotionally and intellectually, although I still lived in the area. Uh, but a bit like your New Zealand self, I was a kind of outsider mm-hmm. looking in uh, and could see things very clearly uh, and very differently from my own peers, from my mates that I grew up with in the street, who had all become rampant prods and all. I, I, I just couldn't see it. I didn't rhyme with reason for me to quote a Haney line. Um, so I early decided to leave. Yeah, well, there's so much I'd, I'd love to kind of uh, explore that more, um, but probably don't have t- time to go delve into Northern Ireland in the 60s and 70s. Um, although it was a, it must have been a frightening place. I mean, you would have been there throughout the 70s when there would have been bombs and, and 
everything well, coming uh, off? What was it uh, like during uh, those times? Uh, maybe part of that was I went off up to Coleraine University. I refused to go to Queen's because I viewed it as a kind of Protestant institution. Uh, and I went to Coleraine. One of the reasons I went to Coleraine is very forward-looking. Um, I want to study literature. Uh, but I didn't have to study Shakespeare and all this stuff. I could study modern American literature and and, uh, and a, a different but it seemed to be more appropriate to me than the kind of the fixed syllabus of Queens. Um, so the friends that I would have had there all came from Falls Road or Anderson'stein. Or, uh, so we would go to sessions in the pub and uh, the Harbour Bar in Portrush. So I got introduced to music, you know, that I'd never heard. You know, the music that I grew up with, Lambeg drums, you know, and marching bands and very aggressive kind of stuff. But here was something different. Um, and here were people who spoke a different language from me, but lived in streets, well, two miles away. Uh, and it intrigued me. And I was studying uh, things like, um, you know, the, the, the playwrights, Sean O'Casey, mm-hmm. and thinking to myself, why am I studying this? This is happening on my streets. I don't need to be reading this play. Uh, so there's a whole lot of... I'm somebody that enjoys questions rather than answers. I don't have a lot of time for answers. Um, so there was all that kind of stuff that uh, I was indulging in in the safety of uh, a university environment, which is what universities are about. Um, So I was gathering stuff which had not been given to me. When I went to school, I wasn't taught anything about Irish history. I never heard a tune from Carolyn in my life. I now have written a book about Carolyn, but that's beside, you know. um, So it's this thing about choice where you're kind of, when you leave somewhere, it leaves you hungry. You know, you've got to fill up the hole within. Uh, and just that music and Irish cultural things intrigued me, you know, uh, because I am my only finding out about this at 18 and 19 and 20 year old when the place was falling apart. Uh, Bloody Sunday happened uh, when I was up. In, in Derry, and uh, I was staying in a house of uh, a, a Protest- an old Protestant uh, family, old Ulster farming stock, uh, who had bought this big kind of Victorian house in Atlantic Circle in Port Stewart. Uh, so us students were paying for it, but they're not kind of nice, but they were an old couple anyway. Mr. Paul died, uh, uh, an old man who I only remember him going out at night and walking along the seafront. Uh, but he had been a piper in the Garva pipe band, which obviously would have been, wouldn't have been Catholic or Irish or anything else. But I was surprised that, you know, his funeral, the, the Garva pipers never turned up to pipe him off. And, uh, and it's this sense of, you know, this wonderful old man whom I hardly knew, who just saw as a ghost walking along the seafront at night, you know, uh, and that was his big thing. He played pipes for the Garva Pipers. Uh, 
and then he was gone. Uh, and a short time later, Bloody Sunday happened when those people were murdered. And, and Mrs. Paul, I come in from you, and his wife was there, and she was in tears in the kitchen. And I said, what's wrong? And she just said, they've just killed, and tears running down her face, uh, they've just killed 13 people in Derry. Now, she would have come from old rural Ulster Protestant stock, but she was in bits, uh, and even the kind of loss of her husband, you know, because they've been together for a long time, seemed to be obliterated by this catastrophe for her. Uh, and what could I do? Oh, do you want a cup of tea? Like, as if it's that. Uh, and I was struck by this, you know, that the lines of history that we've laid down for centuries and centuries, you know, aren't really felt, you know. It's like uh, an addiction. Somebody injects this stuff into you, you know, and you kind of rhyme it all off. Uh, but it was the hurt with this woman, the absolute shock. And I kept thinking, what this woman has seen in terms of the history? And this thing has catastrophically destroyed this woman. She could not control herself. It's as if she was just falling apart inside herself. Um, and I think that was a big decision time for me, you know. Yeah. If this is where we're going, we're not going anywhere. Yeah. And I'm getting out. Uh, so you kind of lived through some of the darkest days of the Troubles over here. Um, and uh, and then you chose in I guess 1986 to to go to uh, Lebanon. Um, I've been the first time. I mean, I think I don't know why I started going to Lebanon and being intrigued by it. The first time was 2001. I think probably watching yourselves growing up in those formative years and being intrigued by Beirut and the civil war, the civil war there from 75 to 90. Um, I think I was always intrigued by it, and it's a place now uh, myself and colleagues have really invested hugely in and offering scholarships to people and, and really trying to make some small difference in, in that country. Uh, but you went there uh, in the middle of a civil war. Um, what was it like, and uh, can you describe those few months you had there before captivity? Yeah, um, first thing I remember when I arrived was the noise. But then Arab towns, Arab cities, really very noisy anyway. But anyway, this is in the middle of the noise, uh, cars pumping their horns, you know, constantly, constantly, constantly. Uh, the streets packed. Everybody, uh, men anyway, all carried guns in the small part of their back or else a Kalashnikov. Everybody carried a gun. Um, you could buy a Kalashnikov in the street for a hundred dollars, um, the magazines to go would cost a bit more, uh, but that's how easy it was to obtain weapons. Um, the other thing was was the uh, after a certain hour, everything stopped. Everybody got off the streets because it was a very dangerous time. You know, when the darkness comes, uh, it's like the evil is released. You know, um, and I remember. Um, I was teaching in um, American University of Beirut, which is known as the Harvard of the Middle East. And I thought, well, isn't that something? From East Belfast, the Harvard of the Middle East. Uh, and I was walking home 
in the evening and uh, I stopped in at a hotel because I'd got to know some people there. And then walking from the hotel back to where I lived, I was stopped by these guys with guns who decided they were official. And I got very cocky mm. in the sense that I'm from Northern Ireland. I'm invisible. You don't fucking scare me with your guns and stuff. And they come in and put me in. They started to interrogate me. And I just, clearly just, I'm not answering your question. Who do you think? <laughs> and once they said I was from a, I was a teacher in AUB, they let me go. Just, oh, okay. But I remember walking up the street. And these guys came out and I could see them watching me. And I could feel almost... This bullet's going to go into the back of my head because nobody takes responsibility, you know, for murders here. Mm. I would go to uh, leave my home to walk to university in the morning to be a, a corpse in the street, you know, um, which nobody would take responsibility for. Some hours later, the families came to take the corpse away. Um, it's almost as if... Um, you, my enduring impression from it is, I like painting, uh, and Goya was one of my favourite artists. And Goya painted some really kind of horrific scenes of uh, human anguish and pain and torture. And I felt like I was walking through a Goya landscape every morning. Uh, the kind of horror of seeing that young woman dead in the street and people walking past, you know. And remembering the gunfire of the night before and nobody going out. Uh, and it seemed I was living one of Goya's nightmares at times. Uh, but I thought, I'm invisible. Like, I'm from Ireland. What does anybody want? Mm. But when evil takes root, there is nobody invisible. There is nobody exempt from uh, the kind of randomness of evil. This con temptiousness of human life. There's nobody around am I very arrogant about it. I thought, well, it can't touch me. And, uh, that's what happens when you get arrogant. You know? Yeah, yeah. So you were in uh, Lebanon. It was in the last five years of, of their civil war. Um, during that time, there was something like 16 different factions fighting each other. Um, it, it must have been a crazy time to have been there. Um, and then you were taken uh, hostage uh, at a time, and a number of others also were. Um, when you were here three years ago, of course, John McCarthy was there, yeah. and Terry Anderson, who uh, from the United States. Uh, it was amazing to see the three of you together. I mean, it, it was one of the most amazing hours or two hours, whatever it was, of like listening to you. It was the most amazing hours of my life, I think. Um, Amazing stories. I mean, you'd think we would have all been sitting there with the horror of it, but you were there was so much laughter between the three of you. It was quite remarkable, but also obviously the, you know, horrible stories. Can you tell us a little bit about companionship during that time and the friendship with people like John McCarthy? Okay. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's very difficult for people to understand this. First of all, let's put it this way. So I grew up uh, working class, from back streets of Belfast. Would have saw myself as a kind of socialist. John uh, McCarthy, uh, awfully well-spoken Englishman, as you know, uh, went to English private public school. Um, 
and the, the, the private or the public school, whatever it was that he went to, it specialised in training young men to become British Army officers, you know, to join as a lieutenant and then quickly progress up through the ranks, captain, major, and, and then whatever. Uh, so we talked about this years into our captivity, not at the beginning. Um, and I remember thinking to myself, and I said, well, if things had worked out differently, John, you would have been on the streets of Belfast, you know, and I'd have been throwing stones at you. And you'd have been telling your young enlisted man to shoot him. So I'd have been throwing stones and you'd have been telling somebody to shoot rubber bullets at me, or real ones. But we had long passed that, you know. But it was a, it was a curious irony. Um, what I do remember is that um, I'd spent a very long time in uh, isolation, confinement. And a small cell, six foot by four foot, um, where they took you out in the morning to go to the toilet and they brought you back again and that was it. Closed the door, turned the lights out and that was it until another day. Um, I could only count the days by hearing a call to prayer. So I knew it was dawn, so another day had passed. Um, it was a very difficult time, you know, when you're kind of in small places like that uh, for a very, very long time in the dark. And when you're not in the dark, they're wearing a blindfold when they take you to the toilet. Uh, and what I remember by the toilet was an Arab toilet, you know, so you didn't sit on it, you squat it down. And beetles crawling up through the, the hole where you le left your mess. And, you know, those beetles, you know, you can't crush them, they're, they're like armoured. Um, and anyway, so you'd be taken back to your, your cell. And, uh, so this goes on and on and on for days and days. And days. I think it was about nine months, I can't remember. I can't be sure. And what happens is there's a kind of um, an emotional and psychological and uh, rational disintegration happens. You just, like, it's like a candle burning furiously inwards, everything just melts down and, and you break down totally, uh, completely. Um, and then by whatever means, uh, you, you kind of come through it. But what, what I'm trying to get to is, when uh, I was thrown into a room with John McCarthy, I didn't know who it was. Because I was wearing a blindfold and there was another person in the room. So I stood there with the blindfold on because what these guys used to do is they'd, they'd stand behind you until you'd think, you'd think they'd left and you'd went to take the blindfold off and they'd beat you very badly. Just so I stood there knowing there's somebody else in this room and it's at one of these. And I stood, oh, I couldn't resist it any longer. And I lifted up the blindfold to look. Oh, McCarthy was on the floor lifting up his blindfold to look. <laughs> And then I, I realised it was another prisoner, and uh, I took the blindfold off, and he took his off, and he said, "Fuck me, Ben Gunn," and I thought, "Hey, Ben Gunn, what are you talking about?" And I'm thinking, Ben Gunn. I thought maybe another lecturer, or journalist, or something. And I said, "Ben Gunn, who's Ben Gunn?" Oh, don't you know, Treasure Island, or whatever. <laughs> uh, and then.
almost immediately after that, I got really scared. Because I'd been on my own for a very long time, and strange things had happened, you know, and what had happened to you personally, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, whatever. Um, and I immediately thought, oh no. If he's as crazy as I've been, I don't want to be with him. So I was more scared of him than I was of Arab terrorists. Uh, and that's what kind of happens, you know. So you have to kind of carefully feel your way into uh, things until at some point, within a, f a matter of, I think, weeks, I can remember saying to John, look, and it was, it was kind of defensive, I said to him, I'm not going to survive here if you don't. And you're not going to survive here if I don't. So we have to get our heads around that. Uh, and he kind of looked at me. John wouldn't have been used to kind of rough Belfast talk like that, you know. I'm not going <laughs> to... Uh, but he understood he, um, um, that mutual is survival here, you know. So uh, what happens in those circumstances is you... Uh, you get to know one another very well. Like, you're with one another 24 hours a day. Um, and you get to know one another very well. Um, and I would recognise when he was going down, and I'd do whatever you have to do to pull him up, crack a joke or slap him or whatever it is. Um, and he would have done the same. You, you know, you have these kind of spells where, you know, it's not manic depression, it's something worse than that because it's awful uh, and you need somebody to pull you out. Um, so we intuitively knew that, um, so that worked. And the other thing was, uh, you mentioned it earlier on, <sighs> comedy is very important. So the guards who were very bright, brutal, uh, some of them kind of needed to be locked up for a long time. Um, so you give them personas, you give them names out of the Disney comic books, you know, which kind of changed the thing. And we always crack jokes in front of them. Can you imagine? Two guys, you know, with a towel around there, we had Stark naked with a blindfold on, cracking jokes. And these guys standing there with Kalashnikovs, not knowing what's going on here. You're not supposed to be laughing. <laughs> you know, uh, so it kind of changes uh, the colour of the, the place, you know, it's almost like you've transliterated Goya into Walt Disney. Uh, and the guards find that very hard to cope with. Um, so that was good. Um, and it's also like, um, here's a guy that possibly would have been shooting me in a different circumstance, who's keeping me alive and I'm keeping him alive. It's like, um, you know... The two personas cross into one another and come out at the other end, and you've taken something from the person, and they've taken something from you until, in a kind of way, you're one person. Uh, and the other thing was there was a kind of spontaneous sense of, of play. And I can you imagine these tiny, tiny spaces um, with a bit of candlelight involve uh, games like you would do when you're a kid. Uh, you know, when you play these imaginary games with your mates. So it, it was very, very like that. It, was, uh, it wasn't quite a reversion of the childhood because 
circumstances all around that told you it wasn't. But it was very like that. It released yourself in a sense of play. Uh, you created another world, uh, which you could change imaginatively at, at any minute. Um, so, in a kind of a way, I was very lucky to have John. Uh, he probably would say the same about me. Um, I could have been with somebody else who would have been a nightmare, you know. You seemed very much kind of opposite. Uh, yeah, even well, when well, we are very much opposite. You, you know, and he even described his, you know, public school. I, I remember him saying one of the things he learned there was just do what you're told, kind of, whereas you were coming from the other end, you know, you, you learned not to do what you were told, you know, to resist. Um, something I found interesting in your conversation well, there's, there was so much that was fascinating. Uh, I was listening to a recording of it before in preparing for this, and it, he said uh, at one point, I remember him saying something to you, could you stop sounding so much like Jerry Adams or Ian Paisley? <laughs> and, you, and you said, if you'll stop sounding like Prince Charles. You know? <laughs> um, so there was the humor and the difference between the two of you, um, but, and, but also the way you reacted to your captors, you know, that he was kind of do what you're told whereas you know you you described often that sense of the the need for resistance or to and there was anger anger of kind of a, he was john mccarthy described you going all h block on them you know and <laughs> can you talk a wee bit about anger and you know you describe yes, uh, it in a way that kind of I, I, it gave I you dignity in a way i used to say to john you know he would get pissed off at me you know giving off to the guards and he say, Brian, just shut it. You know, you're winding them up. And I'd say, John, I didn't do nothing. I don't deserve to be here. And I don't deserve to be beaten up every day with a Kalashnikov. So what do you want me to do? I'm not shutting up. I done nothing. You know? And when they brought me pyjamas, I wouldn't wear them. Why? I done nothing. I'm not putting on a prisoner's clothes. This is all new to John. It wasn't to me. Uh, because... If I don't have any self-respect and any dignity in the place where I have nothing else, then I am nothing. Uh, so to me, to resist uh, acts of defiance, no matter how small they were, were giving me back to myself. Um, because the alternative was, and I know from the Americans that were there, uh, the, that... Uh, Suicide is just a blink away, you know, on these long, long, you know, this continual debasement of everything that's human, you know. Um, so you're not going to give anybody that freely, you know. Um, but it was tantalising. It was very seductive. Uh, so to me, to, 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 look, they could have come in and shot me any time they wanted. Two weeks after I was taken, two of my colleagues, one of my colleagues, but two of my friends, two Brits, Lee Douglas and Peter Padfield, were murdered in their cells. And it wasn't a very pleasant death. It just wasn't. I didn't see it. I heard it. And, it, um, and I watched underneath my cell door the bodies being dragged away on the long trail of blood from uh, Lee Douglas's head. Uh, and... So this can happen to me anytime. They can switch the light out whenever they want. And I don't have any say in this. Uh, so I remember on one occasion, 
when we were being moved, and they wrapped you up in this tape. You know, like a mummy. And they left two holes for your nostrils, and that was all to breathe. And they drove you up for about five, six hours up through the swelter and hills of Lebanon where the heat is beating down. So you're basting in your own sweat. And I ever, because you're taped like this, and I was able to get, and, and I get this off my mouth and screamed at the top of my voice. Rage, John. Rage, rage. Uh, and he just lay silent, you know. Um, because of it all, that was, that was the hardest danger. Uh, um, because it throws your mind totally. Um, so you have to get that out to get control back. Um, so uh, defiance, you know, is just an act of reclaiming yourself because they could come in and just put, it, put a gun to your head and, and that was it. Uh, but it was also at another level, it was also affirming that uh, death will have no dominion. Uh, and at a further level that I, after a long, long time, I got to come to an understanding that um, there isn't any death. Uh, not, 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 no, I'm not religious. I, I just do a very deep and profound understanding about this. Uh, so why should I hand it over to somebody who's a bit of a card, you know, uh, and whose power is a class? Cough. Look, anybody can do that, you know. Uh, so it was about an act of mm. self-reclamation. Mm. Uh, you, um, I heard you talk about um, you read the Quran. Well, obviously while you were there, and a, and a line in it where the Prophet describes, you know, leave them with a Quran so they will leave something with something more than what they came with. Can you tell us about that, what that verse meant to yeah, you? And uh, we were given nothing. Uh, no radio, no TV, no books, no newspapers, no nothing for about three years. And then they uh, gave us a copy of the Bible, uh, and a copy of the Quran. <laughs> Uh, I'm laughing because one of the guards was so religious that uh, when I was reading the Quran, it was a transliteration, obviously, and I was turning the pages. <laughs> he came over and slapped me because my unholy hands were turning the pages, and I'd say to him, "How am I supposed to read this? How am I supposed to read this?" <laughs> you know, and, but he got very angry because my uh, just anyway. So. I read the Bible inside out, upside down, the wrong way round and backwards uh, for a long time. And the Quran I read, um, only I was reading it the wrong way, you know, in our Arab world, it's oh, yeah, that way, yeah, it's not yes, that way. Yeah, you know. yeah. uh, but anyway, um, two things stuck out from the Quran and, and that one were um, the Prophet Muhammad is talking to his followers. And he says to his followers about hostages, about captives, give them a Quran that they will, may take with them more than when they were taken. Now that has two meanings. It means give them the Quran and they'll have a religious conversion when they're released. It can also mean give them the Quran and give them, they can have a religious conversion before we execute them. It has, but anyway, so I argued this with them, you know, 
But their argument was, you have a tongue of a snake, you know. I, I didn't. I, that's their words. It's the words of the prophet. Uh, but then to, like, fundamentalists anywhere, there is no analysis. There is no exegesis. It is what it says it is. And if you say anything contrary, you know, you're a son of Satan or whatever it is. Uh, and another sure that I was reading called the car, I came across this um, term, an evil cradling. And it's like somebody's, what? Uh, and I thought, if I ever get out of here, and I ever write about this, that's the title. Because an evil cradling is, in the Islamic sense, that if you're a non-believer or a disbeliever, or, uh, you will be eternally, for every second of every eternity, you will be eternally born screaming and yelling into the most horrid, malign evil. You will have an evil cradling for every nanosecond of your existence through you. And I thought, hi, perverse a mind. But how wonderfully elaborate, you know. So, and this was Goya all over again. Uh, so that became the title of a book, which I never thought I would ever write. Uh, on reading the Bible, um, I, I still have thoughts about that, you know. Um, I've always tried to understand um, what it is and uh, with humans, this need or this, I don't know, compulsion to conflict, mayhem, murder, whatever, whatever it is. Uh, well, what, what is that? Uh, because we're highly articulate and quite elaborate. Well, what, what is all this? And I used to have arguments with John and the Americans, because I was with the Americans for a short time, about um, nothing that one human being does to another human being can ever be called inhuman. I cannot be, you know. So what is this malign humanity, which is part of each and every one of us? Uh, so, and this... It was a continual debate with myself for a long time, trying to. Uh, but then reading the Bible, <laughs> non-stop, for a long time, I read the Bible all over the place. I found out, I began to understand, uh, for my own sake, why humankind throughout its history has always been involved in this hideous chaos. Uh, uh, and why is that? And I find it's authored right here in the pages of these holy books, the Quran and the Bible. The authors of this conflict, this chaos, is authored in these pages I'm reading. Uh, and that, it wasn't that I didn't intellectually turn off. I just began to have some kind of uh, sympathy for the kind of fundamentalist, the jihadist, who has no capacity to analyse or very little capacity for empathy. Uh, but I still remember it now, reading these things, I said, the author of every human contact throughout history has written in the pages of the holy books. Uh, 
you know, and that's where it comes from. You know, now what I actually mean is how people choose to understand that, but that was my vision. This is where all this comes from. This is why I'm being beaten every day and tortured. This is why two of my friends are murdered. This is why the streets that I come from in Belfast, you know, are being burnt. It's all in here and the pages of these holy books. Uh, but anyway, I suppose I was just venting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's you're touching on probably what is the theme of these these podcasts and the documentary, and um, which is this quote from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who passed away just a couple of months ago. Um, religion is not mute and marginal and mild. Uh, it's like fire, and like fire, it warms, but it also burns. And we're the guardians of the flame. Um, so you're touching on kind of religion as this toxic fire and you were at the receiving end of horrendous treatment by people who felt deeply committed to a particular religious belief and you were coming from a from Belfast it was in the middle of a, a conflict that was about lots of things you know but one of those themes was definitely religion um, like what's your reflection do you find any kind of redemptive kind of nature of, of religious belief or how do you kind of... That's, that's very difficult. Uh, it's really very difficult because because I'm not religious and therefore... Um, but I like people who are because they seem to have something about themselves that others don't. It doesn't make me religious. I just, uh, I'm intrigued by it. However, when I read your quote from the rabbi, I thought, oh, I know that. Now, I'm not religious and certainly wasn't when I disappeared in Lebanon, uh, but I prayed. And I thought, I have no kind of to say that to anybody. Uh, and I discovered that uh, when you enter the powerhouse of prayer, you need to be wearing an asbestos suit because things are going to happen. You know, and they're going to happen to you from the inside out. Um, so, and that was an experience, uh, an encounter with, uh, the word I prefer is numinous. Uh, and it never left me this um, thing. Uh, I don't go to churches. Well, I would go into a church or a chapel because the architecture of the silence, or a mosque. I've been back to Lebanon lots of times, and I go into mosques. And one of the things that I enjoy going into a mosque is the men are all lying sleeping. <laughs> you know, they go into the mosque to have a sleep. <laughs> and I think that's fine. That's what you should be doing. You know. But how can I say this? Um, what you discover, or what uh, I discover I made for myself is... Uh, an old Christian, a medieval Christian doctor or monk, but they were one and the same thing, healers. Healing is a very important word for me. Um, let me remember it. Thus we are men, and we know not how. There is something in us that can be without us. Whether it comes, we know not neither whether it goeth. But this one thing alone we know, 
without it, we are not men. And that rings bells. It's like Christmas bells. It rings in my head all the time that there is something that is within us, that is without us, that is deeply fulfilling. And to count to your friend, the rabbi uh, who you quote, I have another rabbi, rabbinical friend. I think it's, I met him many years ago. Uh, I think his name is Melchior. It's a very old Jewish name. Who talked about um, that there is uh, that man and God are co-partners in the drama of redemption. That's a very Jewish thing. And I thought, yes, I can go with that. Because that places me, not me personally, but that places humanity in its proper place in relation to whatever the divine or the holy or the numinous is. That we are co-partners, co-partners. One no good without the other, co-partners in the drama of redemption. And when, when I talk about redemption, I don't see that as being converted. I see that as, as making whole the person, the community you live in, the earth on which you walk upon. Uh, and I like that. Oh, and your rabbi's friends have stuck with you and my rabbi. Those mm. words of that, yeah. co-partners in the drama of redemption of making whole. Mm. I love that idea of redemption being being made whole. That re- definitely resonates um, with me. Uh, I um, if a couple of years ago, there's a Benedictine monastery a couple of miles up the road here. You know, amazing people, um, lovely French, great cooking. Very, very profound people. Um, Father Mark actually is from North Belfast. He leads the community there. And uh, Brother Thierry is, is a French monk. And I interviewed Brother Thierry and he talked about silence and solitude and aloneness. And um, obviously in a very different context to what you experienced. But he talked about, I mean, he talked about how often people who talk all the time are very lonely because they just are full of themselves. Yeah. And that it, and silence kind of empties the space of yourself and allows space for other people. And uh, you talk about loneliness, the different kind of contrasting loneliness to aloneness and and that and kind of finding that part of yourself, which I suppose is that powerhouse you're describing. Can you reflect think, uh, a wee bit on that? You pick up on that very well. I think there's a very distinct difference between loneliness uh, and aloneness. One is aloneness you kind of choose. Uh, and... You know, I think when you choose to be alone rather than not being forced to be lonely, you choose also to let go of a lot of old stuff that has accrued onto you uh, by life's experience or lack of life's experience. Uh, and you get rid of all that um, totally. Or... Sometimes it's not an act of will. Sometimes it's just taken from you by, by, by however. Uh, and sometimes it's not pleasant. Uh, sometimes it's very profound. I could remember times in my cell that thinking, if the guards come in here and tell me, Brahim, they used to call me Brahim, Brahim, you go home now. I would have said, no, I'm not finished. I'm not uh, but that's a dangerous place to be. The life of the mind is uh, very seductive, quite profound, but quite dangerous. Um, however, um, 
who was it? You know, once you let go of all this, I never thought about when I was locked up. I never thought about life outside. I, my reality is in here, uh, and the only way out is in to go in very, very deeply. And I processed that over years that I had to do that to go in very deeply until I could go in so deep that I could literally fly out of myself, fly over landscapes and come back because the secret is you have to come back. Freud said, you know, madness is, is the uh, flight from a traumatic reality to a safe place and to stay there. That's how he defined madness. And I quite understand. But I had to come back, fly back into myself. Put my hands out and touch the wall. My wings are gone. Uh, so there's kind of this uh, something very, very, very powerful within us. Maybe that's why people are alone or are lonely because they don't want to go there or they're afraid to go there. It's right to be afraid. Uh, but the gift of the promise is very real, you know. If you go there, uh, you will discover dimensions uh, that maybe you would be happy to read in a Marvel comic. Uh, you know, this is a very, very, very powerful place. Uh, I think the difference is kind of summed up to me um, by um, Solzhenitsyn writing about his, you know, the Gulag experience. You know. Um, transformative things that happened. Um, he said, uh, let me remember, it is only he who does not know where he is going will enter the promised land. And what he's saying is you have to let go of all the assurances, everything. Everything you believed, everything you believed about God, everything you believe, you have to let go of all that, totally let go of it. And you... For him, and I, I go along with him, will enter the promised land. Mm. Blindfold or not, that's where you will go. So the journey is the destination, kind of, kind of the, the idea. Um, that's, uh, that's brilliant. Um, I was, uh, I probably shouldn't be telling you all the research I was doing. I wasn't, wasn't doing that much, well, I was doing a bit, but kind of watching old YouTube videos of interviews with you. And I, I watched one of you on the Late Late Show. Um, it must have been one of your first kind of longer interviews. Okay. Uh, you know, months, I suppose, after you were released. And it reminded me, uh, like, I suppose in my teenage years, the two people I most wanted to see in real life or on TV were probably yourself. Like, what what's Brian Keenan look like? You know, hope he gets released and I'd be fascinated to see what he looks like. And then also the other one was Nelson Mandela, you know? Yeah. And I remember watching Mandela get released as well, and that's kind of probably 15, about the same time. You were actually both of those were 1990. Yeah. Can't remember uh, what I think you were out first, but it was a similar time where it was like, wow, this is life uh, events are happening. This is big stuff. Um, and I remember so last night I was watching that late late show and with a very young you just out of captivity, and uh, somebody in the audience asked you. Uh, about forgiveness, you know, and I was st struck by your answer and I'd be interested to know where you stand with that now. You, the, the person said, do you forgive them or something? And you said, of, of course I do. You know, there was, I was really struck by that sense of uh, graciousness about you, but 
generosity and but also a sense that you were looking beyond the individuals that were holding you captive to maybe the bigger structures and do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I, I get asked that question a lot and sometimes um, I just push it away and say, look, I don't understand mm. that concept. I, I leave that to those who do. Mm. Uh, but that's not an answer, you know. Uh, so, and I have thought about this for a long time. Uh, so, two things. If I don't forgive, you know, if I want vengeance or justice or whatever it is, then I'm not out of that hole in the ground in Lebanon. I'm still there. So it, it doesn't have any meaning for me. Um, the other thing is, and this is a story I haven't, I've only ever told one other person about this, but it sums it up very profoundly for me. One of the times I was back in Lebanon on my own, I, I was talking to this young um, Palestinian woman uh, who was uh, not your usual Palestinian refugee. She'd been educated in Yale or, or someone at a big university in the States and had her master's degree and was working uh, with the Hariri Institute on rebuilding Lebanon. And for whatever reasons, we were standing, there's a place in Beirut, you probably know it, where there's the Christian Church of St. George just across the piazza. There's the... Um, Muslim mosque and in between there's what's called the garden of forgiveness which is just desolate wasteland you know fallen over direct columns you know the whole history of Lebanon is written, and, and the historic ruin between those two places but anyway for whatever reason we were just standing there and she out of the blue apropos of nothing just said to me uh told me the story of her uncle and her cousins who were murdered by the Israelis, but trailed out of their houses, beaten, and then summarily executed. This is her uncle and, and, and her cousins, who would have been young. And, uh, and I was looking at her um, because I thought, why is she telling me this? Um, and then she said very calmly, I can never forgive them. And this struck me. I didn't say anything. I said, okay. But I went away and thought about it. And she said, she didn't say, I will never forgive them, which was an act of defiance and anger and aggression. She said, I can never forgive them. And I remember when I'm talking to people about this stuff, I look in their eyes because... The eyes of the windows of the soul and that exposed part of your brain and it's the truth to talk through the eyes. And I looked at her eyes and she was hurting. She was hurting really, really badly. And what she was hurting about was the fact that she could not forgive them. What she was saying, I want to. I want to. But she couldn't find whatever it is that um, enables that act to happen. Uh, and it struck me that she said, I can't. She didn't say I won't, she said, I can't, and I hurt. And I thought, hmm, that, that tells a lot. And I thought about it afterwards, and I remember I, I wrote to her and I spoke to her for years afterwards. And um, when it comes to the terms with this thing, first of all, when it comes to forgiveness, forgiveness 
first of all, has to be sought. It has to be asked for. Um, and the person or persons or whatever who are looking for forgiveness have to have had a crucial experience within their own understanding of what they did, why it was wrong, why it hurt it, and why they're hurting so badly, so terribly badly that they need this. They need this water. They need that their hurt, their pain for what they did is so incredible. Now, so that has to be sought for first. And the person who has to forgive, who has to do the forgiveness, wants that kind of open-heartedness, uh, that kind of confessional, raw thing is exposed then. For me, the person who's supposed to do the forgiving will recognise right away that the pain, the anguish, the hurt, the horror of the person who is experiencing and confessing the need for forgiveness mirrors exactly the pain, the hurt, the anguish, the loss, the anger of themselves about the parent that was lost or somebody who was killed or whatever the incident was. So, and then... I think the process, because two souls are talking to two souls about the same thing, they're mirroring each other. They're acknowledging that the hurt is the same. It's in the same place. It comes from the same place. And then, then I think what happens is a very, very complex and deep process then begins. Uh, and that's my understanding of it. It's not as easy as to say, I forgive, or will you forgive me for it? This is something existentially, emotionally, psychologically, collectively, very, very deep process that has to be gone through at a deeply personal level. You know? um, we don't often see that, because it's a very difficult thing for anybody to do. As regards my own thing, look, if I saw Saeed in the street, I Saeed was a very nasty piece of work. Uh, Saeed enjoyed torturing people. And I've often thought if I was sitting in Lebanon and Beirut and Saeed come up and said, I am Saeed, uh, my first inclination would be, well, fuck you, there's no chains on me now. Uh, but then that's anger which you're allowed. But I kind of know that I would say to him, sit down, Saeed. Have a coffee. And then I would ask him, Saeed, you tell me what you were thinking when you were doing those things to me. Because I think I know. And if you can tell me, Saeed, I can set you free. I can take it all away. And that's what forgiveness is. It's a profound sense of, it's a meaning place emotional empathy, I don't know, there's lots of words around it, but that's where it begins. Yeah, I mean I've kind of talked about forgiveness lots uh, and I think often it seems like a very, kind of like a just this discussion about morality or like some kind of conceptual and I think talking to you uh, it's something much far beyond that and I think uh, that was it's amazing to hear you just the your ruminations it kind of it feels like even like last night watching that uh, interview it feels like the audience there when was that 1990 91 
we're kind of going, tell us what happened or, you know, whereas um, it, it kind of feels like 30 years later now, talking to you, it feels like you've, ex you do have a, it's almost like ascetic, like you have something to give the world that, because we don't have it, we're, even though you had a more horrible experience than anyone could ever imagine, it's like you now, you know more about the world than the rest of us. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I understand what you're trying to say. People sometimes say to me, um, first of all, I get asked by religious bodies to come and talk to them all the time, and I refuse. Uh, yeah. But Eric, people say to me, you know, uh, Brian, you know, do you really have to suffer to get to your level of understanding? And I say, no, you don't. But I'm telling lies, you know, uh, but, but, so I don't wish suffering on anybody. But suffering to me is just letting go of all this stuff, uh, this kind of armour that you put on yourself, defensive, uh, to hide behind. So uh, there is a kind of suffering, you know, that um, I think you have to go through. But it's blessed, if, if that's a word, you know, Blessed are the peacemakers, you know, uh, you know, the Beatitudes, all these. And it's not, it's not the peacemaking bit. It's, that intrigues me. It's the blessedness, you know. And you only achieve whatever blessedness is, to my understanding, is when you've let go of everything that stops you from climbing up the ladder or stops you from flying into the heavens. That's what blessedness is. It's an engagement with something deeply profound uh, and deeply meaningful, transformational and life-changing. Uh, the peace comes afterwards. You have to go through this, pre this process. And unfortunately, I think it does involve suffering, but I don't wish it in anybody. You know. No. Um, well, we're just kind of, I, I would love, there's so much stuff that would be amazing to talk about with all that and the, the wind around Carlingford Lock is, is billowing outside. Uh, I'd just love to kind of move into just where we're at now um, in the world. And um, this is a strange time uh, to be in. Uh, the words that are used often about this time and um, this moment in history is populism, nativism, um, uh, America first, Britain first, France first, whatever, you know, uh, this fear, xenophobia. Um, you obviously grew up in a sectarian city, a sectarian country. You were imprisoned partly because of all that sectarian stuff, religious hatred. And um, what are your reflections on for the rest of us who are kind of trying to navigate our way through Brexit and Trump and Le Pen? Uh, and, I know it's dreadful. Um, uh, one of the first things I despise in myself is kind of um, talking about Donald Trump's demented, delusional, whatever. That doesn't get us anywhere. I, but I try to see this bigger um, than just whatever's happening and with Orphan and Hungary and Boris Johnson. I try to get away beyond these personalities. And see this thing as something bigger. And I have a sense that um, the world is changing. 
at all kinds of different levels, uh, ecologically, even spiritually we're changing. Um, our understanding, our connectedness because of TV and computers and phones and all the rest that gives us access into things that people and, and beliefs and so that we would never have had. But something's changing. Um, something in us as human beings is to resist change, you know, we crawl back into the shell, you know, uh, when change is what we most need. Um, and I think when something as big as this we have, ecological change, we have well, this COVID, you know. <laughs> We're now realising that humankind are not the masters of the universe, you know. Um, that nature is bigger and that, uh, what do you call it, scientists? The Gaia theorist, Lovelace, who wrote about this, uh, that um, nature has an intelligence of its own and it works independently and it heals itself independently of the human beings. Uh, uh, and he was poo-pooed and all the rest. But now we're all realising, well, look, uh, what is this? You know, corona is Latin for crying. But who's wearing the crown now? You know, and it's not us, you know. So we threw our crown away a long time ago when we decided that we were kind of the masters of the universe and could kind of change human destiny. Well, I'm not so sure about that. But what I'm trying to say, to me, is a sense of something very, very big is abroad and is, is moving at different levels in our understanding uh, to bring us to a sense of awareness. I, I prefer the word to wake up, uh, to come out of the sleep we've been in, and everything is burgeoning towards this change, and it's going to happen whether we go with it. But being the nature of people that, that we are, you know, who are kind of self-interested. Uh, so we retreat and we listen to, uh, I don't know, demigods who promise everything and can give you nothing. Uh, but, but that's in the nature of human society. But I, I think this is different from any kind of understanding I have of the progress of human history. I think this is happening so big all at once together um, and we have to think of it as much something much, much bigger than Brexit or American politics or something else. Look, politics to me is just a kind of uh, way of managing. It's not a way of knowing, uh, you know, so we have to have the capacity or find the capacity to realise what's going on on a larger scale of things and envisage a place that we want to go to that's much, much richer than what we're being offered at the minute, which is, OK, look, it's nothing, you know, and it's a bunch of lies, you know. And I think the truth's in the heart. The story I want to tell you, which I remember... Um, of a, a Presbyterian missionary who went to Lebanon with all the best of intentions. Uh, and he went to meet one of the um, sheikhs yeah. who would obviously have been a Muslim. And they sat down to talk. And um, so the old sheikh reached across to the missionary and opened his shirt and pulled his shirt open. And then opened his own, whatever it's called, and exposed his chest and said to the missionary, let our hearts speak. 
And that's where we need to get back to, to talk out of here and not out of here, you know, and to talk about what we're afraid about uh, and talk about what we want uh, and who we want to become or where we want to go. Because big things are telling us that there's new truths need to be told and caught hold of. I think we're in incredibly um, prescient times like I don't think we've had in human history before. Wow. Um, that's, that's something very beautiful about that, let our heart speak. Um, it just uh, come last couple of questions. Um, uh, um, I, I wonder, the, thinking about a lot of words when I was reading uh, your story and words, and we've touched on some of them, like anger, loneliness, um, fear and hope were some of the things, the th- themes that I saw. Um, what did you learn about hope? Did you learn about hope in that time that we can kind of somehow grasp, learn from your experience what you went yeah, through? Uh, hope didn't come into it for me. Uh, my understanding, and I used to say this to McCarthy, because um, he was always talking about, you know, get out of here today. I, was just, oh, I just couldn't go to that place. Uh, I had decided that. My reality was in here, and I couldn't change that. Well, I could by learning to go inside very deeply, but that was a long, very difficult process to learn that. Uh, And I remember saying to him, listen, John, hope for everything. Expect nothing. Because in the liminal place between those two extremes, you'll find the room to get through this, you know, uh, and that's my view of hope, you know, um, hope for everything, expect nothing. But in the space between those two extremes, you'll find whatever it is you need, whether it be power or imagination or vision, uh, to get through the bad times. Uh, and when you get to come out the other end of it, at least you'll be balanced uh, rather than, you know. I saw a man who lived in hope. And, and look, one of the Americans who died deeply disillusioned, uh, his mind completely gone, you know. Uh, so hope for everything, expect nothing. And in that balanced place in the middle, you will get through whatever the, the dark nights are, whatever the bad place is, you will walk out of it unscathed. Mm. Um. Uh, I wonder, we're hoping to make a second documentary or maybe possibly a couple of shorter films about Lebanon. Um, uh, And I wonder, just in your journeys back there over the years, you've written, it included some of your novels. uh, um, What are your reflections on the Lebanon of today? Uh, And uh, as you go (laughs) walk around, what do you see? I'm very fond of Lebanon. Uh, I like... I like Lebanese food. I didn't get much when I was there on my holidays. Uh, I like Lebanese people. Uh, what I like about Beirut is I can walk into a cafe in Beirut. There'll be lots of young people there in their 20s. And they'll be speaking German, French, English, Arabic, whatever. And they move from one language to the next to the next effortlessly. And they will be talking about the situation or the wada, as it's called, uh, so they'll be kind of cognizant of world affairs. They are able to move through languages. Um, a great sense of humour. Uh, 
Lebanese people love life. Uh, that's why their food's so good. Um, and I, I like the place. Um, but to me, look, to me, Lebanon hasn't really changed much. Uh, when, when I was out there, one of the times I was out there, I was talking to an Armenian friend who put it to me this way. He said, uh, Lebanon is the laundry. And I looked at him, what do you mean? He says, people come here to wash their dirty clothes. And he was talking about the generations that they have been, the Byzantines, the Romans, the Turks and everybody else. Uh, like as if Lebanon, some laundry where people just come. Uh, he said, but did Lebanese survive, you know? Uh, and another guy in another part of uh, uh, East Beirut, I was travelling, I went into the jewellers to buy a watch. My wife was going to buy me a watch. And I said, why are you going to buy me a watch, Audrey? She said, because you spent some time here. <laughs> And so the guy in the shop, they all spoke fluent English, said, uh, we're chatting away, and he asked me where I was from, and had I, had I been to Beirut before? I said, yes. I used to teach in the American University. Oh, American University? So that's a big deal. But then we got to talking, and he said, you know, people in the West do not understand. You know? They talk democracy. But it doesn't work here. We're different. And he has this Arabic, it doesn't work here. Uh, and he's right, it doesn't. You know, we can't superimpose values from another culture onto something, which is infinitely very rich and very complex. Look at the difference. There's Druze, there's Christians, there's Greek Orthodox, there's Muslim, there's Armenians. You, you can't kind of do a Mr. Balfour and sort it all out because that doesn't work. Um, so <laughs> it's that kind of, kind of cultural diversity that intrigues me. But it's also what I find, and I've been back about five times on my own, that uh, as seductive as Lebanon is, and it is very seductive, it's uh, very dangerous. You know, it's like a flower that if you put your nose too close to smell the perfume, it will poison you. You know, uh, maybe that gives it its mystique. Uh, I talked to another friend, Abir. One of the times I was out, and there hadn't been a government in Lebanon for a long time, and I said, how are you managing? And we were sitting in a restaurant, and Abir's uh, Shiite, and she said, Brian, look, we haven't had a government for five years. And there's about, I don't know, about 120 people in the restaurant said, look, are they worried? You know, um, and I took her point, you know, so it's kind of, problem is, you know, everybody else wants to sort out the world according to their own vision, you know, instead of just letting people do it themselves in whatever way, uh, whatever hardship they bring upon themselves, but that's where the learning process is. Um, so I go back, I love the place, do I see it changing much? No, not, not a great deal. M maybe that's why I like it. One evening I was walking through Hamra. Uh, and there was uh, a cafe that was playing great jazz music and there was a young guy sitting there and he had a notebook or something and a book and he's taking notes and I was intrigued you know, because the music was brilliant and I looked at him and he was wearing this t-shirt 
That's it. I didn't burn down Mecca. I didn't, whatever it is, steal the holy tabernacle or the Jewish, whatever it is, the holy grail or whatever it is. I didn't crucify Christ. So why me? <laughs> and I thought, that's very clever. It's very funny. It's a, it's a big dilemma there, you know, all these confessions who give the guys of being able to work together, uh, but they don't really. And, but that's a question that has to evolve its own answer. You know, uh, and when an Armenian says everybody comes to wash their dirty laundry in Lebanon, what he's saying is Lebanese need to sort out their own problems. You know, and stop coming over here. You know, and wash. So, yes, I like the place. Yes, I go back often. Uh, I take my wife and kids back there um, because it's an important place in the world. You know. And people live there, and they're real people, you know. When, in 2006, I remember watching the, uh, the bombing of um, Beirut by the Israelis. And I knew Ehud Olmert. I had met him several times before he became premier. Uh, my first thought was, my students aren't terrorists, you know. And how many of them are alive now because of this? You know, because that was, there was nothing kind of worked out about that. They were just going to turn Lebanon into a parking lot. Uh, and that's, that struck me very deeply. You know. uh, my students aren't terrorists. They weren't terrorists. Uh, you know. And they're probably dead now, or else they've left. But who cares? You know. Yeah, so just maybe to finish, um, as we're talking about Lebanon, uh, in even 2006, the first Lebanese guy that we brought, um, we do the scholarship thing every year and uh, bring people from areas of conflict to, to Northern Ireland to to contribute something and, and hopefully maybe learn something as well. And uh, he came at the end of his kind of gap year with us. It, it There was no airport in Beirut for him to fly back to because it was being blown up in the 2006 war. And so we ended up staying and, and ultimately stayed with us for five years. It's a guy called Rami Talib. Um, and, you know, he was, he was a lovely young guy at the time. And he's become just a, a brilliant activist and is married to Rula. Um, her dad was in the Lebanese army in the Civil War. Hearing his stories are amazing. Um, and Rami and Rula, they've, they've just been given... Uh, they've been uh, some f- received some funding to build a peace center in the south of Lebanon, and um, I wonder uh, just to to finish really, um, if you were to think about a peace center in the south of Lebanon, or even a peace center in Ireland, or a peace center in the world, uh, what needs to happen, you know, uh, in that place for it to really be not just a not just a showpiece, but an actual place where people kind of meet each other and some kind of real wholeness, redemption, as you described it. That's, that's, that's really very difficult. That's why there's kind of peace processes going on throughout human history for, forever. But, um, for me, I think my immediate response is to that is that we have to deconstruct the language that we live in, you know, uh, because people kind of, uh, they say things, you know, 
they speak things, they say things without engaging their brain because language is what, it, what they've been given, you know. So we have to take, deconstruct this language. What does it mean, you know? Um, it's like when I was trying to explain to you earlier on about the Palestinian woman who said, I can't forgive. Not that I will not, I can't. And I had to go and think about what she was saying, you know. Um, so we need to take down the architects, archetypes of language, you know, and all the shibboleths and all the kind of... and rid ourselves of that and find a kind of... a new language which is open, which is empathetic, which allows the other in and allows me out. Um, and I, th that's a difficult, but it's a, a more easily measurable process because it gets you somewhere. You can see it and people start talking. Um, their language changes. Uh, sometimes I think in peace processes, what, what we do is <laughs> we try and deal uh, with the old kind of languages of no Pope here and, you know, whatever it is, I can't remember them all. Uh, and I think, no, 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 wait, look... That's redundant, you know. You see, peace isn't the absence of conflict. Peace is about conflict. Peace is about getting inside yourself to tear down these walls of hand-me-down beliefs, to pull them down, to listen while others are crumbling inside. It's about conflict, it's about getting inside yourself and getting inside somebody else. And peace has to be seen as a conflict situation. Tear all this down to see what's left for us and what can we build with what's left. Uh, and I think sometimes peace is sold as a kind of some very, very woolly thing. To me, peace is about deep existential conflict, honesty, openness. Uh, and it's a war that a lot of people have to wage within themselves. But everybody needs help to do that, you know. And everybody needs healing in the process, you know, when they get, when they tear down the walls and they have a deep look at themselves and kind of find themselves kind of not quite as blessed as they think they are. Uh, and then they kind of need a salve, the ointments, the frankincense and mirror, whatever it is the bomb to put themselves together in a better place. And they're in a better place because they went on this journey, self-conflict with someone else. Uh, and I think that's what needs to happen, as, as I understand it. Um, Brian Keenan, that's uh, brilliant. Uh, I, uh, I think um, there's so much in what you've said there that is just very, very rich and uh, uh, you know, it's it's interesting. It feels like you you've just got this deep reluctance to um, preach or to give categorical kind of answers because there's something about that journey that you describe and that kind of sense of it's not about a this destination and religious rules and structures and um, but yet there's so much truth and I think in in how you're communicating and uh, I really appreciate uh, appreciated meeting you three years ago appreciate it, your generosity in coming up today and, and being with us. And uh, and I think you're someone who I think many people deeply admire, um, not just because of what you endured, but now how you've lived post that. Um, you've lived and 
uh, Brian's a great writer. You're a great writer. The An Evil Cradling, obviously that first book, but now your your books. I remember you doing a reading of it th- three years ago of one of your latest novel, and just yeah, deep kind of textures and colors and way you describe. So, thank you for your time, Brian. You're very kind. And, uh, yeah, well, I hope to see you again. Sure. Thank you. Okay. Thanks a million. All right. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm.